0: getting God's understanding and God's structure of the Bible is helpful. See, if we don't have that, it's easy to get lost. It's kind of like, it's kind of like climbing into an airplane. I I like this illustration, so bear with me if you've heard it before, but it's kind of like climbing into an airplane and getting the big picture of a forest, flying over a forest at 10,000 feet, and you get, you kind of get the lay of the land, and and uh, where there there's trees and where there's rivers and mountains and all the the topography of the land before you actually land the plane and start walking in the forest and looking at the individual trees we it seems like every year we hear of people in New Zealand who go into the bush and they get so caught up in the moment and in the minute details of the the beautiful creation that God has made they're looking at little little animals and, and bugs and insects and, and the flora and the fauna and so forth, and, and they, they find themselves lost. They don't really know where they are because they, they don't know how they got there, and they don't have the big picture. They don't know how to get out. And that can happen in the Bible as well. So just kind of picture yourself climbing into an airplane and flying over the forest of Scripture at ten thousand feet, to get the big picture, and that's kind of what Jesus needed to do here in luke twenty four This is after his resurrection there's uh, these guys traveling on the, the the road they're walking on the road, going to Emmaus they're they're discouraged, they don't understand hey they you know they thought Jesus was their Messiah, but he died and he was crucified they didn't they're not getting the full picture of the Bible either and so as jesus is talking to them look at this this verse here in luke 24 verse 27 look what jesus says in luke 24:40 or 27 he says in beginning with moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so jesus is interpreting the old testament scriptures that's all they had at that point As he's talking to these two disciples, he wants them to understand the Scriptures are about him. It's all about him. And then in verse 44, he mentions the three divisions of the Old Testament, which are interesting. So look at verse 44, because he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the three divisions that Jesus mentions in the Old Testament being the the law of Moses, which of course we, we call the Pentateuch, the first five books in your Bible, and then the Psalms is just referring to all those poetical books in your Bible, starting with Job. And then, of course, uh, the prophets or the prophets. So those are the three divisions that Jesus used. And notice again he says it's all about Him. So let's I, I, I wish we could have been there and you could have heard Jesus Himself explain the scriptures to you how it's about Him. Uh, I don't know exactly how he did that, but I, I hope it was something similar to what I'm going to attempt to do right now. All right, so let me just quickly give you an overview of the the whole Bible, and then I want you to see this first of all, because these are my divisions that I'm going to use as I attempt to show you how Scripture points to Jesus. So obviously, your Old Testament, your Old, which is a covenant. Starts in the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. Moving on from there, you, you go to the historical books, obviously starting with Joshua. And then you have the poetical books starting with Job. And then uh, after the poet or the poetical books, then you have all those, those prophets. And so the, the Old Testament ends with the prophets. You have four about four hundred years of silence where there was no scripture written. And that leads into your New Testament, or your New covenant, starting with the Gospels. and then moving into the church first church history book being the book of Acts. And then you have all those epistles or letters written mostly to churches, some of them also written to individuals. And the Bible, sorry, ends with the revelation. So that is, is the, the kind of the outline we're going to go through very quickly. And see how that points to Jesus. So, Old Testament. The Old Testament is an agreement. It is a covenant between God and His people. So when you see the word testament, think agreement, think covenant. And it is be- only between God and His people. So that obviously starts in the Pentateuch, the what we call the five books written by Moses. Yes, I know there is is great debate on who the author is, but uh, to me, there is no real debate on this. But uh, look at Genesis chapter 1. Have your fingers ready, because we're going to go real quick. Unlike a lot of books in your Bible that, that start off by telling you who the Holy Spirit used as the human author, this one doesn't start that way. It just... It just starts off in Genesis 1, verse 1, in an interesting way. Very different from other books. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) Now, some people ask, well, when did God create the universe? When was this beginning? He just says, in the beginning. He doesn't give us a date. Obviously, there was no B.C. and A.D., at this point, because you need Christ to come along to, to divide our history between B.C. and A.D. So when did this happen? Well, there's there's different ideas on this. It's certainly not billions of years and millions of years old. I find it interesting, uh, though, that the, the Jews are some of the ones who date the creation of the universe, some of the earliest. The Jews actually date the creation of the universe at 3,760 B.C., so, 3760 BC, then you tack on 2017 years onto that. So, what are you, you're only looking at, uh, what, about 6000 years, approximately, since uh, God created the universe. So, it's, cer- it's certainly not that old. But as you read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's easy to read those books and become confused, become a little discouraged. Uh, like a lot of Christians, they start reading through the Bible, they, they want to read through the Bible every year, and they get to the book of Leviticus, and they, they, they quit, because they don't understand what they're reading. What, what's the purpose of Leviticus? Well, as you read all those books, you'll see a lot of content, there's a lot of details, what do you notice? Well, you notice more than just the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. There are far more than just Ten Commandments. In fact, you read lots of laws, don't you? Uh, and, and in fact, the books of Moses often get called the Law, or the Law of Moses, as Jesus called it. In fact, there's 613 total laws in those books. But we also see a very detailed sacrificial system. See, God instituted these sacrifices. In fact, there were five major sacrifices that God had instituted for his people. And you need to ask the question as you read these books, why did God tell his people to do this? Why are these laws and these the sacrificial system needed? And to answer that, you need to understand that nobody kept all the laws. In fact, that's one of the purposes of the laws to show that you need Jesus because you can't keep all 613. It's impossible. Jesus is the only one who kept them all and the only one capable of keeping all of those. So no one has kept all the laws except Jesus, but God, though, was merciful and gracious to give us these sacrifices. Well, to give His people, Israel, those sacrifices. Praise God, we don't have to do those today. So, what was the point, though? Well, the point is in a key word you find in, particularly in the book of Leviticus. The point at issue, particularly in the book of Leviticus, where you find all these, these detailed, uh, laws regarding the sacrificial system, is the word holiness. Holiness is a word that is talking about God's uniqueness. The word means separateness, or the fact that God is different from His creation. Uh, there is no one else like God, which is why you have in the Ten Commandments, there, there's only one God, and so when you worship Him, don't, don't even try to replicate God, don't, don't make graven images, carve Him, don't bother, because there is nothing else that ac- accurately represents God. You can't do it. Because God is unique. He's separate. He's, he's different. In fact, the word holy or holiness occurs 200 times in those first five books of your Bible, in the Pentateuch. Now, the reason for giving all those laws, God did have a reason for what He did, of course, was that you would come to be in your practice what God is in His character. See, God wants you to be like Him. You're you're to be conformed into the image of Christ, the New Testament says. But it's interesting, in the book of Leviticus, God actually told Israel to be holy as I am holy. And then when you read Peter, Peter quotes from Leviticus, and he says, be holy as God is holy. So God wanted his people to be different. He wanted them to be separate. He wanted them to be unique, which is why he told them not to intermarry with the other cultures and and the people groups that were around them. And since no one could keep all these laws, you might say, well, why have sacrifices if you can't keep all the laws? Well, to answer that, I'll ask you another question. What happened in the sacrifices? There was a shedding of blood in those sacrifices. So when you killed the the lamb, for example, they would stick the hand on the head, cut the throat, and the lamb would bleed to death. Blood had to be shed. Why was the blood shed, though? Because God wanted to show His people that death, since the life is in the blood... The Old Testament said he wanted to show that death, therefore, was required for every sinner. Every sinner had to perform sacrifices. Well, you know the answer, hopefully. Did the blood cleanse away sin, then? Did the blood cleanse away sin? No. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, verse 4, it's impossible, in fact, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Well, if 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 you're with me so far, you might be thinking, okay. Well, then what's the point? <laughs> it's impossible for the blood to take away my sin, to take away anyone in it, an Israeli sin. Then why have sacrifices? And why should we read these books anyway? <laughs> is what some people would say. Why bother reading books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? Why do I need to know about these sacrifices, these blood offerings? Good question. Well, they need to cause our hearts. When you read Leviticus, your, your heart should long for something. When you read Exodus, your heart should long for something. You shouldn't be satisfied with just the the knowledge of, okay, now I know what's going on. But they should cause your heart to long for the perfect sacrifice offered by a perfect priest. And that, my friends, is the, the function of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is to show the need for a perfect priest. You need a perfect priest just as Israel needed the perfect priest. And that's why... God wants to continually illustrate our need for a substitutionary atonement. You need someone to take your place to make you at one with God. You need to be reconciled to Him because of your sin. problem is you can't save yourself, so you need the perfect priest. So as you read those first, first five books of your Bible, the function is to show the need for the perfect priest. And then as you move into Joshua through Esther, these historical books, they have a different function, a different point that they're making. So, what are these books about? Well, look at Joshua chapter 1. Look at Joshua chapter 1. We don't need to read the entire book, nor all of these books, to get the point. What are these books about? Well, Joshua kind of tells you here, in just in a few verses. So look at Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, "'Moses, my servant, is dead.' Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Notice keyword, land. Do These books contain the history of God's people, Israel, and their land. The land is important to Israel, And by the way, the land will continue to be important to Israel in the future. All right? It's still important. But here's the contents of the historical book, starting with Joshua going all the way to Esther. The contents basically has to do with the land. Joshua just mentioned the land. But Joshua tells us how Israel got the land. So, I I hate to inform the Palestinians today of this, but the land was given to Israel by God, and it still belongs to Israel, and will always remain belonging to Israel. So how do you feel when you read this first of the historical books we call Joshua? There's, there's a general atmosphere you need to get as you read this book. Hopefully you're encouraged as you read the book of Joshua, because on the whole, you see good leadership. Joshua was a godly man and he he performed good leadership. But then you come to your next book in your Bible, which of course is Judges. How do you feel when you read Judges? <laughs> right, well in that book it's uh it's quite discouraging, right? It's it's typically not the book that Christians go to when they're feeling down and discouraged and a little, you know, if you're in despair I don't recommend going to Judges. That's just not the book for you at that point in your life. But there are some valuable lessons to, to learn. No, it's not one you go to when you're discouraged, you say, "Well, why? Well, look at Joshua chapter or sorry, not Judges chapter one. Judges chapter one. By the way, the beginning of the book and end of these books often kind of inform you on the general idea of the book. So look at Judges 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So, Joshua's dead. He was a good leader. But, like all good leaders, they die. So, in this book, it's interesting, the people would sometimes do well at least... For a little bit, while the judge was alive, but the cycle continued. The leader died, and you get this, this downward spiral just going through the whole book as things just get worse and worse and worse. And so if you look, that's how the book starts, as if that's not depressing enough. Look how the book ends. So it's it starts with death of a good leader. Joshua, look how the book of Judges ends. Last chapter, verse 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So how do you feel from the book of Judges? It's it's pretty discouraging on the whole. We We have leaders, imperfect leaders. We have kings who are dying. Leaders who who are not able to fulfill and be fulfill the 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 purposes that God had designed for them—they're not perfect. And then you come to the next book, which, by the way, Ruth takes place same time as the Judges. So you come to Ruth. Are you encouraged? I hope you are as you read the book of Ruth, because even in the midst of terrible times like the book of Judges. When there is no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, which is disaster, there, there there is something still to be encouraged about. God is still using people to accomplish His purposes. So as you read the book of Ruth, you should be encouraged. One of the reasons you should be encouraged, besides there's this, this person in the book who's who is pointing to the kinsman-redeemer, besides Ruth being in the line of Christ and and, and David, and and you got Boaz and and some good stuff going on here. We see faith in the midst of faithless times. So we need to be encouraged as we read the book of Ruth. So look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Because it says, "...in the days when the judges ruled..." there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And that's how they they go over to Moab and eventually find Ruth. And God eventually blessed that Gentile woman. In fact, look at the last verse in Ruth. because Notice who comes from Boaz and Ruth. The last verse in the book encourages us because it says, Obed, who, by the way, who's his father? Because The previous verse says, Bo- Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So eventually David comes from Boaz and Ruth. So, God is, is blessing a Gentile woman. So, Jesus' family tree includes a Gentile. Whoa. Well, praise God for that. Now, you come to your next books. Obviously, you have a first and a second Samuel. Who are the main people in the two books of Samuel? Well, it starts off with a guy named Eli. How do you feel about Eli? Well, I'm discouraged when I read Eli. Eli. And then you, well, fortunately, you have the books named after a guy named Samuel. On the whole, I know he's not perfect. On the whole, I'm encouraged as I read about Samuel. And then you come to another guy that discourages me. His name is Saul. I mean, he's, he's supposed to be the first king of Israel, right? But there's, there's so much hope in this guy, but he doesn't deliver. But then you come to the next guy. You have David. We just read about him, right? The end of the book of Ruth. I know David wasn't perfect either, but on the whole, we're encouraged, or should be encouraged as we read about David. But then David has a son by the name of Solomon, and again, we're discouraged. I have a lot of mixed feelings about Solomon, and you say, well, why do you have mixed feelings about Solomon? Well, look at 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3 tells us why we need to have mixed feelings about Solomon. First Kings 3 verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. Really? Well, that's what the Bible says. He says he loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. What did the Bible say he loved? Well, it said he loved the Lord. Well, I wish we could end there, but that's not where Scripture ends. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Scripture says he also loves something else. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now King Solomon loved... Many foreign women. Hmm. So he loves Yahweh and he loves foreign women. Which did Solomon love the most? Well, it's the one you worship that shows who you love the most, right? And in the end, the Bible says he loved women more than God. And this is why I have mixed feelings about Solomon. Because there, there is some, some hopeful things there. There is some good stuff with Solomon, but there's a lot of bad stuff too. So, we see how Israel got the land in the historical books, but it's not just that, is it? In Joshua, we see how Israel got the land, but these historical books also tell us how Israel lost the land. And Solomon started leading them down a really bad path of idolatry idolatry caused Israel to lose the land. So the historical book shows how they got the land. It shows us how Israel lost the land. You can read about that in 2 Kings and Second Chronicles. We don't have time to get into that, but basically it was the idolatry of God's people, Israel, that, that led them to this destruction, that led them to the captivity. In fact, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom of Israel was conquered in 586 B.C. by Babylon. That's how they lost the land. They should have kept it, but because of idolatry, it led them to God's judgment. But because the land belongs to Israel, God also shows us how Israel got the land back. You can read that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther which will show you how Israel got the land back. So God sends Ezra back, God sends Nehemiah back, and we see, we see all the, the exile, all these people who are in exile over in Babylon and in Persia coming from the east to come back to Israel. So what's the point of the historical books? Well, the point has to do with leadership, what are the names of the books? All the names of these books show you the point has to do with leadership. Joshua is a leader. Judges are leaders. Samuel was a leader. Kings of Israel, leaders. All right? Ezra was a leader. Esther was a leader. Nehemiah was a leader. You get the point? <laughs> okay? It's all about leadership. Most of the names, as, as I said, are leaders. And in the end, we see. Even though it's about leadership, we see that all human leadership fails. It always fails. Why? Because these leaders were sinners, therefore they sinned. And because of sin, the Bible says we must die. The wages of sin is death. And So there's a lesson to be learned in this. Don't put your trust in human leaders. Because they will always fail and they will die. So the function, as you read these historical books, don't miss the point. It's about leadership, but it's showing the need for a perfect king. That's the function of Joshua through Esther. It should be causing you to long for something better, something that is to come. And that brings us into the next part of your Bible, which we call the poetical book, starting in Job. By the way, Job, Is possibly the oldest book in your Bible. Maybe the oldest book in human, in human literature. But as you read these books, you come, you come into these poetical books. Take note that Israel's two greatest kings wrote most of the poetical books. Of course, David wrote approximately half of the Psalms. And as far as we know, Solomon wrote uh, most of the Proverbs probably wrote Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. So, what did these guys write about? Well, as you read Psalms, this is getting into the content part of these books very quickly, okay? So bear with me here. So as you read Psalms, it tells us, particularly Psalm chapter 1, which is the introduction to the entire Psalter, shows us a contrast between the godly way and the ungodly way. So we see in Psalm 1, an ungodly person is just somebody who is not acting like God. An ungodly person is simply someone who is not like God. They do their own thing, follow their own way. And that's the theme, the way of walking by the Word of God. Proverbs, of course, key word in Proverbs is wisdom. The word wise or wisdom is used about 120 times in these books. So it shows us the wisdom of the way that was introduced in the Psalter. Then you come to Ecclesiastes. Keyword, of course, is vanity or depending on your translation would be meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Of course, then taking that keyword way and following that through, this is all about the vanity of following any other way than God's way. It's all vanity. Solomon tried it, and he found it vanity. Solomon experimented with everything that he could possibly come up with, and in the end, he found all of life without God to be meaningless. Key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. It doesn't mean it's a waste of time to to plant stuff, it's not a waste of time to do necessarily all those things that Solomon got involved in, but it, anything under the sun without God is meaningless. And look how Solomon, if he is the human author, look what he says in Ecclesiastes 12. Look at verse 13. This is how he, he kind of sums up the book. In Ecclesiastes 12:13. he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that ends the book of Ecclesiastes. And then you come to this book that we call the Song of Solomon. Look at the first two verses first two verses say, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then the the bride confesses her love. And it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. We don't have time to get into the entire book, but basically you see in the book of the Song of Solomon, you have this, this love, this devoted affection that this woman has for a king and just so you know i do believe it is a real these are two real people this is a real king and a real woman okay uh there are people who uh who spiritualize this particular book and don't believe the real people i i certainly believe these were real people solomon was a real person and he's mentioned there in verse one and so you do see the d- devoted of affection for, for, uh, of a woman for a king. Now, what's the point of that content? What's the function of these books? Now, by the way, what I'm going to say is speculation. Okay. Cause I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure necessarily what the function of these books are. I don't have a chapter and verse to prove this to you. But I wonder if, as we think about the function, the function of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, is it possibly a carry-on from, from the historical books revealing what the perfect king is going to be like when he is finally found? So those historical books have showed us, hey, we're longing for the perfect king. We need a perfect king. What is he going to look like? What's it going to be like when he's finally found? And then you come to the Song of Solomon. Could it possibly reveal how we're going to feel when we find the perfect king? It's a very emotional book. There's a lot of love going on here, isn't there? And I wonder this because there are a lot of godly people, godly people who believe this particular book pictures the relationship of Christ and his bride. The church, of course. So yes, real people who had real lives, who had real love for each other. But is it helping us point beyond just this life to something yet to come? How would Jesus preach this? I can't help but think He would, he would show this is pointing to something beyond us, a lasting relationship of Jesus with His bride. So the poetic section is, think of it as a subset, if you will, of the historical books by revealing the ideal king. And then you come to the last part of your Old Testament, the prophetic books, Isaiah to Malachi, 17 different prophets. Some people divide them up into major and minor. Uh, That just means that some books are bigger than others. And, of course, they're all important And so you come to the first one, Isaiah. What is this all about? What's the content of these books? And then we'll see what's the point, what's the function. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Isaiah 2, verse 1 says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So, what do we see here? Well, as you read the prophet Isaiah, you're going to see a lot of predictions and prophecies. A lot of these things haven't been fulfilled yet. Many of them will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming and even particularly during the Millennial Kingdom. So there's a lot of predictions or prophecies. And the prophets, by the way, are not just predicting things to happen in the future. That's not what it's all necessarily all about. There's other stuff. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Isaiah is talking about the wickedness of Judah here. And he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. "'Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. "'The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, "'but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. "'Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, "'offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. "'They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, "'they are utterly estranged.' Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. As you read that, what kind of literature does that sound like to you? Well, if you heard someone speaking like this in a church setting, what would you call that? If you heard that kind of language right there, in a church setting, you would say that guy is preaching, and that's exactly what it is. It's preaching. So a lot of the prophets you will find is just like we just read. It's is a lot of preaching going on. Who are they preaching to? Is the question. Well, the contents of the prophets need to understand are woven into the historical books, and and so you can see this, for example, that that most of the Old Testament. Even though it's uh, chronological, the prophets are not chronological, okay? And this is one reason why some people get confused as they read through their Bibles every year. They're like, "Well, wait, why is that all of us? You get to Isaiah and it doesn't make sense chronologically. That's because it comes during the times of the kings of Israel. For example, look at Isaiah 1, verse 1. So you'll, you'll see when Isaiah lived, he says, "...the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah." So Isaiah is prophesying and preaching during the times of those kings right there. So please understand, when you read the prophets, try to fit them in, And there's even some Bibles that do this, fit them in chronologically within 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So, what are they preaching about during the time of the kings? Well, let me give you another example, Jeremiah chapter 1. All right, you're going to get the same idea from, if you read the prophets, they're They're prophesying and preaching, prophesying and preaching. So look what Jeremiah does, chapter 1, verse 1. the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Right? Again, you got kings. Right? So Jeremiah lived, prophesied, and preached during the time of those kings. So, the content of the prophets needs to be weaved into the history of Israel. Now, what are the prophets preaching about? Well, the point at issue here is loyalty. Loyalty. We see God's loyalty to His people, even though they were faithless and they were unloyal to Him, God continued to be loyal and faithful. God wanted His people to be loyal to Him. They were not. Idolatry is disloyalty. And so the point at issue is loyalty. What were the prophets preaching? Well, God called here for a commitment from His people. But in the midst of this calling for commitment and loyalty, he assured them of his loving kindness. And so, if you go back in your Old Testament, you see God made a covenant. He made an agreement with his people. And he told them, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. you disobey me, you'll be cursed. So they lost the land because they didn't obey God. And when they were blessed, is when they were obeying God and they were worshiping Him. But to, to see this 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 covenant, this agreement, you need to look at the second law, Deuteronomy chapter five. Look at Deuteronomy chapter five, because I want you to see this is all about loyalty. That's why we're going back here. It's all about loyalty. So Deuteronomy is. Moses' really long sermon. <laughs> He's giving the law a second time before Israel goes into the land. Moses doesn't get to go into the land, so look what he says. Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We'll stop there. You see the first part of the Ten Commandments there. So this is the second giving of God's law. And what does God expect in return for His people keeping this covenant and keeping this agreement? Well, look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There it is. (laughs) By the way, Jesus quotes that when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the answer? To love God. So that's what was expected of them in return. God blesses His people. He's their God. They're to love Him in return. So that's what the prophets preached about, was loyalty to this God. Were the prophets successful in that purpose? Well, to get the end of the story, you really need to go back to the end of Israel, To sorry, to where Israel lost the land, which is the last chapter of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. To see the answer to this question, were the prophets successful? Look at Second Chronicles thirty-six. Second Chronicles thirty-six. Last chapter, Second Chronicles thirty-six, look at verse. 16, but they, Israel, kept mocking the messengers of God, that's the prophets, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So, something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. The problem is, even the prophets can't do it even they can't do it so the function is therefore to show the need for a perfect prophet because even though these were men of god they still were not perfect and so the last prophet gives a prophecy of the perfect prophet who would come look at malachi chapter 3 and so the entire old testament ends by looking for the perfect prophet and in fact tells about the perfect prophet who is to come. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's how your Old Testament ends. He's coming. And this prophecy, by the way, was eventually fulfilled about 400 years later in Jesus Christ. They had to wait 400 years, but eventually he came. The other thing I want you to notice how the Old Testament ends, look at the last verses. Because your Old Testament does not end on a a high note. (laughs) Yes, we're looking for the perfect prophet, but look at the last two verses, because it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So your Old Testament ends with the word destruction. <laughs> of all the words the Bible could have used, some of your Bibles might say curse. So it ends with a curse. It ends with destruction. And so you read the Old Testament, you should be longing for the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. So here's the five characteristics of the Old Covenant. You have unkept laws, number one. You have unavailing sacrifices, three, unsuccessful leaders, four, unfulfilled prophecies, which lead you to the fifth point, You need to be longing for something better. You should have unsatisfied longings as you read your Old Testament. So, let me give you a quick overview of the Old Testament here. So, here's your different genres. I've put them up here on the left. The genres or literary styles you have the Pentateuch, historical books, poetical books, prophetic books. And And then you have what actually books in your Bible there are. What's the point of all those books? So the Pentateuch shows you the point is it's holiness. God's holy. We're not. We're supposed to be holy. Historical books talk about leadership causing us to long for the perfect king. Poetic books are about wisdom. I'm assuming causing us similar function to those historical books, longing again for the perfect king. Prophetic books show us loyalty. God is loyal. We're to be loyal to Him. Function is to cause us to long for the perfect prophet. You have 400 years of silence. All those promises were made are going to be fulfilled. God makes promises, and in the New Testament we see God fulfilling His promises. So, New Testament, what does that mean? It just means it's a new covenant. It's vastly different from the Old Covenant. And as you read your New Testament coming into the first book, the book of Matthew, some of your Bibles might say the gospel according to Matthew, or the gospel of Matthew, some of your Bibles might say. Now, why does it say the gospel according to Matthew? Well, you need to understand what gospel means, right? Gospel just means good news. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling you this good news. What is the good news? Well, look at Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Look at Mark 1. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at Luke 1. Hopefully you're seeing a pattern here. Luke 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, look what John says. John 1. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know who the Word is? Well, the context tells you. If you go all the way down to verse 14, context says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15 says that John bore witness about Him. Who, of course, if you read down to verse 17, you see is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is this word. Jesus is the good news. So the good news is a person. Okay? Don't miss that point. And this person is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And what are they doing with all of this content? Well... I'm glad to say they didn't tack on 613 more laws. (laughs) Okay? What did they do with the content? Well, it's not more law. The function. Here's the function of the Gospels. They're introducing this person. They're, They're introducing the good news to you. So it's an introduction to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the Gospels, by the way, Don't fully explain Jesus Christ and His work to us. It's not meant to be exhaustive. So it's good that you have 23 more books in your Bible that that help explain Christ and His work. So we have, uh, well, we'll I'll talk about that in a moment, but let's just quickly think about these Gospels. The first one is Matthew. Very quick overview here. Matthew was a Jew, one of the disciples of Christ. He was an apostle and an eyewitness of Christ, writing to the Jews here. Is it any wonder that his book is saturated with the Old Testament? So if you're writing to Jews, why not use their Bible? And that's exactly what Matthew does. And that's why he starts off with a genealogy, which is designed to document Christ's credentials to be the king of Israel. And so when you read Matthew, for example, when you, we just read Matthew 1.1, 1, one, said that he, Jesus, was the son of David, which shows Christ's royal ancestry. But that verse also said he's the son of Abraham, which shows his racial or, or genetic ancestry. But Matthew's presenting Jesus as the messianic king. And why did the king come? Well, read Matthew 1.21. Matthew one twenty one says that he will save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew said. He came to save his people from their sins. And then you come to Mark. Mark's a little different. He's a He's a Jew. He's a friend of the Apostle Peter, so Mark is basically Peter's gospel. And he's writing to the Romans, presenting Jesus as a suffering servant. Now, why did the servant come? Well, look at Mark 10, verse 45. Mark tells us why Jesus came. Mark 10.45, key verse for the entire book. Mark uh, 10.45, make sure you're in chapter 10. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came to serve and to give his life. And So Mark's gospel is the gospel of the Lord's actions and his deeds, which you'll notice as you read the book of Mark. Hopefully you've noticed this. Key word is immediately. Immediately Jesus goes here. Immediately Jesus does this. It uses the word immediately over and over and over. Short book. It's like like reading a comic book. Boom, boom, boom short quick to the point it's a gospel of lord's actions and deeds then you come to luke he's a greek physician companion of the apostle paul so you might call this the gospel according to the apostle paul if you will he's writing to the greeks and you can see the greek physician coming out of luke every time we read the christmas story luke is the one most interested in babies (laughs) isn't he typical of physicians right and so he gives the fullest account of the birth and the infancy of jesus christ the others don't really tell us a whole lot about that and so you come to luke chapter two verse 40 you have the first 12 years of jesus pretty quick isn't it luke 2 verse 40 says the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of god was upon him Wow, there's the first 12 years of Jesus' life. Obviously, not the most important part. But then you come to verse 52, and that covers Jesus' life from age 12 to about 30. Look at verse 52. It says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, why would Luke do this? Well, he's Greek. He's a physician. And you need to understand he's writing to these Greeks who were fascinated with humanity. Too, for that, too fascinated at times. But anyway, that was their fascination. So, so if you're writing to them, you showing, he's going to show that Jesus is the perfect man. He's focusing on his humanity. Now why did the perfect man come? Look at chapter 19, Luke 19. Why did the perfect man come? Look at verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, so is John going to be different? John is different. He's a Jew, also an apostle, and another eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He begins his gospel a little differently. As we read verse 1, you notice it was, it was in fact, in fact very different. Not your typical introduction. And so in John 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And of course, Jesus, verse 14 tells you he's Jesus. So what's his purpose? Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians, all the Christians. Different purpose, though, presenting Jesus as fully God. How do we know this? Look at chapter 20. John tells us his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31. Look at verse 31. Look at your Bibles in John 20, 31. It says, These are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John presents Jesus as fully God. So again, uh, there's a little uh, portrait here on the screen for you. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, showing a different portrait of Jesus. Matthew shows him as king. Mark shows Jesus as a servant. Luke shows him as a man. John shows Jesus as God. And, and, and Jesus is all of those. He is the king, he's a servant, he's a man, and he's God. He's all of those at the same time. And so the other thing I want you to notice is the gospels are well balanced. They're introducing a person, but this person has two natures. Now he wasn't in eternity past, Jesus didn't have humanity. He he didn't have that side of things. So his incarnation gives Jesus his humanity. Now, notice how well-balanced the four books are. So you have Mark and Luke showing the humanity of Jesus, and you have Matthew and John showing the deity of Jesus. Two different books showing the, the two sides of Jesus, the two natures of Jesus. One person with two natures. He is human, and he is deity. So, they're just an introduction to the person and work of Jesus, It's not complete, so we need more. And that's why you have these other books in your Bible. But first of all, let's look at the Acts, the book of Acts. What's this about? Well, Acts means doings or works. In fact, your Bible might be like mine. If you look at the heading in your Bible, it probably says the Acts of the Apostles, right? Is that what yours says? That's what mine says. Uh I think that's an unfortunate title. I might be a little picky here, but uh, the title is saying that the main actors of the book are who? Apostles. Now remember, t- remember, titles are not inspired. They're not the Holy Spirit didn't put that there. In fact, I see. I think as you read the book of Acts, you'll find that even the apostles themselves would disagree with that title. For example. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I want you to notice who chose the new apostle. Because Judas went out and hung himself. He wasn't a real apostle. (laughs) He wasn't even a believer. So they need a new apostle. Because you have to have 12, right? Supposedly. Anyway, so look how they chose the new apostle and who chooses. Acts 1 verse 23. Acts 1, verse 23 says, They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So who chose the new apostle? Who are they praying to answers the question, right? Notice they're asking the Lord, the head of the church, to reveal who the new apostle is. So Christ is the one who ends up choosing the new apostle. Then you go over to chapter 2. Who sends the Holy Spirit? Look at Acts 2, verse 32. Acts 2, verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses, being therefore exalted, At the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's Peter preaching. So Peter understands who the main actor of the book of Acts is. Peter's telling you it's the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he would disagree with the title. (laughs) And then you come to... verse 47 who's adding to the church verse 47 says praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord not the apostles the lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved so christ is the one adding to his church he is the head of the church so what i'm trying to say is these passages are just some of the passages proving that christ is the one building his church. So Acts contains the activities of the ascended Christ. Just because he's gone to heaven doesn't mean his ministry and his works have ceased. Acts tells us what to do with those facts that we've read about in the Gospels. So here's the function of Acts, the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's why you have a lot of preaching going on by the apostles, like Peter. What are they preaching about? Jesus. Right? And so Acts covers the first 30 years of the Christian church. We see how the gospel spreads as they preach of Jesus. Well, how did they do in that first 30 years of the church? Did they actually accomplish what Acts 1, verse 8 says? You remember Acts 1? Because Jesus says to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Spread out from Jerusalem to Judea, spread out from there into Samaria, spread out from there into all the world. That's what Jesus told them to do. How'd they do? In the first 30 years. Well, go to chapter 28. Chapter 28. Look at verse 30. How does the book end? Chapter 28, verse 30, says, He, that's Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, it doesn't tell you there exactly everything going on, but here, here's the point. Paul is, as far as we know, in Rome. And so within one generation, 30 years approximately, what did they do? The believers in Christ took the gospel, the good news, to the to the ends of the known world. And they, by the way, may I remind you, they did that when there were no airplanes, no cars, no trains, and no internet, and no radio, no TV. <laughs> So that's how the book of Acts ends. They're proclaiming the one who was introduced in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you come to the epistles, or these letters, starting in Romans. So go over to Romans. Who are they written to? Well, these books, as I said, were written mainly to churches. Some of them written to individuals that you read about in the book of Acts. Why? Why are they doing this? Because if you proclaim Jesus Christ, guess what? People have questions about Jesus. They have lots of questions about Jesus. And so the epistles are there to help answer those questions that people had about Jesus. So here's the function, my friends. The function of the epistles are these letters. Letters is an explanation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it takes 21 books in your Bible to do this. Now, to see this, we're not going to look at all 21. Romans is sufficient. Look at Romans 1, verse 1. So, bear in mind, this is the explanation of the person and work of Jesus. So look at Romans 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And jump down to verse 16. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's Paul's introduction. What is he telling you in his introduction? Well, I hope you get the point here that he wants to explain the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in this book, he spends 11 chapters on doctrine, and then he spends a couple chapters on applying that doctrine. What does the mercies of God look like in your life? Well, read chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So the function is to explain the person and work of Christ. And the epistles are telling us how this good news is this power of God to salvation. And then you come to your last book in your Bible. Right? The epistles all are basically doing the same thing. So if you read, if you read Romans, you get the point. So you come to your last book in your Bible. Some of your Bibles might have a title for this. What does your Bible say? For the title of Revelation. Mine, in this particular Bible, says the Revelation to John. Some of your Bibles might say something else. They might just have Revelation. But what is it revealing? Who is it revealing in particular? It's the revelation of what? What does the book reveal? Well, all you have to do is read the Scripture to find that out. Look at verse 1. Revelation 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants. There you go. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation reveals Jesus now. But not just now. This this is the way He is now in heaven. But Revelation is awesome because it also shows us what's Jesus going to be like in the future. Have you ever wondered that? Well, if you have, read Revelation. Because some people, they they don't like reading Revelation. Some preachers don't want to preach on Revelation. They're afraid to preach on Revelation or don't want to. Well, my friends, then you're not getting a, the full picture of Jesus if you don't read Revelation. What is he like in now and in the future? See, Jesus is not a little baby in a manger, is he? That's not the way Jesus is right now. Is Jesus in a manger in the future? No, He's not a little baby in a manger in the future. He's very different. So that's why you need this book. See, you haven't seen Jesus like this before. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 12. This is not a little baby in a manger. Verse 12 says, Then I turned, that's John, he sees the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lamb stands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters And Hades. So here's the function, my friends. That's describing Jesus. But it's showing the perfect intended ending of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why this is the last book in your Bible. And so what is most of the book about? Well, you might, if you read it, you'll know that most of the book is not actually about heaven. Most of the book is actually about a seven-year period called the Tribulation. So if you read all the way from chapter 6 to 19, you'll you read about all these judgments that Jesus Christ throws down on planet Earth as He judges these people who have rebelled against Him. But in the midst of that, when you see God's judgment, always look for His grace. Because there is good news even in this book. See, everything is going to end exactly as God wants it to end. Everything will be fulfilled as He's designed it. So, you read Revelation 20, what do you notice? Well, you see Satan, who is eventually defeated. He will be ultimately defeated. And You come to Revelation 21 and 22, it tells us about the capital city of heaven. You see a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem will be the capital city of heaven where all believers will live forever with Christ. And so you come to the end of this marvelous book that has been pointing to Jesus all along, just as Jesus said in Luke 24. Look how it ends. Revelation 22, verse 6. Have you been longing for Jesus? The one who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king? Well, look what it says in Revelation 22, verse 6. He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. and The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not steal or seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Come. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. And God's people say, Amen. And thus ends the Bible. And as Jesus said, it's all about Him. The Old Testament gave promises. The New Testament so far has kept those promises. There are more promises yet to come. So may we long, wait, and be ready for the coming of King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for promises that have been made and promises that have been kept. May we believe you. May our faith, our trust, and our belief be utterly, fully, completely in you, not in ourselves, anyone, or anything else. May we recognize that all other things will let us down and will fail. So, as we read your word, may we long for Jesus. May we look for Jesus. May we wait for Jesus. May we love and worship King Jesus. Enable us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.